Welcome to the JACCP podcast. My name is Jerry Bauman, and I'm the editor of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we're talking with Drs. Alexander Mills and Molly Nichols. Together with co-author Dr. Elizabeth Davenport, they published an important paper in JACCP titled Chronic Pain and Medical Cannabis, a Narrative Review and Practice Considerations in Persons Living with HIV. This piece is published in the March 2022 issue of JACCP. Dr. Mills, an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Nichols is a community practice research fellow at Purdue University College of Pharmacy. Alex and Molly, thanks for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. So to begin and and to be sort of frank, I didn't personally fully realize that chronic pain was such an important problem in patients living with, with HIV. Could you review the scope of this problem and describe the possible etiologies? Yeah, definitely, Jerry. Thanks for having us on. So many of those working with persons living with HIV are also rather new to addressing this burden in our patients as much of our focus has shifted from effective treatment, viral suppression, which we certainly now have, to more comorbidity management. So based off of various systematic reviews and surveys, you could say about a little bit more than 80% of persons living with HIV report chronic pain, but I wouldn't be surprised if that number is a little bit higher. Now, the type of pain these folks experience certainly varies, but neuropathic pain by and large seems to be the most prevalent type of pain that we see in persons living with HIV. Now, the cause of that pain seems more multifactorial. So historically, increased reports of pain were more correlated to those with a detectable viral load. We also would see people placing blame on the older generation nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors, or NUCs as we like to call them. So those would be examples of didanazine, where drugs essentially nowadays are extinct in clinical practice. The limitations, though, lie in the characteristics of those studies, particularly we saw patients that had concomitant diabetes, which clearly increases the risk of them having some type of peripheral neuropathy. We also believe there's some nutritional deficiencies like B12 or vitamin D that may be the cause, which I would say is quite plausible given the challenges that I see in these patients in terms of economic and housing instability that unfortunately is connected to the the stigma and discrimination related to HIV that we still unfortunately face. So why is this a heightened concern, right? Well, we've seen in various interviews and surveys with persons living with HIV that experience chronic pain that they have this significant decrease in mobility, self-care, and mental health. And our biggest concern culminates in those with this perceived poor pain management. We've seen they're less likely to be engaged in their care or be more adherent to their antiretroviral therapy, which we do know very well leads to an abundance of poor health outcomes, both related to HIV and non-HIV related. So are there consensus guidelines on how to treat chronic pain in these patients? And if so, could you briefly review them for the listeners? Yeah, definitely. So we, we do have some guidelines related to this. The one that's probably the most commonly cited in this space would be the, the joint guidelines through the HIV Medicine Association and the Infectious Diseases Society of America, specifically titled Management of Chronic Pain in Persons Living with HIV. So right what we're looking for. Really to summarize it, 
these guidelines kind of follow your similar stepwise approach that you would use for current standard of care for all patients. So again, thinking of starting with our non-pharmacologic options before adding more increasingly potent analgesics, considering surgery, whatever that may be. So now when talking about specifically neuropathic pain, however, this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. There's a discussion on the use of topical high-strength capsation which is recommended more for our distal neuropathies, followed by gabapentinoids. Uh, I will say that, you know, we talk a little bit more about this in the, the manuscript that's published, but there's definitely some limitations, I would say, for those in relation to these patients who are allowed to use opioids during that process as well. And then opioids, of course, can be considered in more severe cases, yet the guidelines actually endorse medical cannabis beforehand when possible which, as many of you can imagine listening, that would garner quite a bit of interest from HIV specialists, palliative care specialists, and of course, persons living with HIV. Now, in light of the opioid overdose crisis, this recommendation for more effective non-opioid therapies with a much more favorable safety profile definitely warrants some exploration. So certainly, some patients living with uh, HIV and pain end up on opiates. And unfortunately, probably become dependent. So what is the evidence then that that cannabis could be an alternative form of treatment in these patients? Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, I think first we should quickly clarify the difference between dependence and addiction. So when we use the term dependence, we are typically talking about physical dependence. So developing tolerance over time and experiencing withdrawal symptoms when opioids are stopped. And physical dependence is expected with long-term opioid use and doesn't mean that someone is addicted, although it is, um, you know, a component of addiction. And then addiction, on the other hand, is, you know, chemical changes happening in the brain and accompanying behavioral changes. Substance use becomes more important than other responsibilities like work or family care. And people with addiction also continue to use even when they know and they're aware that their substance use is causing problems. So substance use is no longer a choice in addiction. Um, Brain changes make that substance use a need. And addiction is a much more devastating problem than dependence. And opioids, we know, are incredibly addictive. Um, And big pharma hasn't always been truthful about their addictive nature. And this is one of the reasons why we're experiencing an opioid epidemic in the U.S. So as Alex mentioned, non-opioid alternatives to pain are big hot topics right now. And cannabis is certainly one of those emerging alternatives. And I want to be really explicit by saying that cannabis is not without harm. Cannabis can also be addictive, and there's a risk for cannabis use precipitating schizophrenia, along with some more, you know, other minor side effects. Uh, However, you know, there aren't any recorded deaths from cannabis overdoses, which is in in a big contrast to opioid overdoses. We've seen about 500,000 deaths from opioid overdoses across the last 20 years. So from a harm reduction perspective, cannabis looks like the clear winner for causing, you know, less devastating harm. And so that question is, like, does cannabis actually work in pain? And the short answer is yes. Uh, We would like to see more randomized controlled trials to more confidently say yes, but there is growing evidence to suggest that cannabis is effective in the treatment of chronic pain, and particularly for neuropathic pain, which again, as Alex mentioned, is especially relevant for persons living with HIV. Yeah, Molly. So I think you're bringing up a point here again. What does this mean specifically for this population? So what does this mean for persons living with HIV? First, substance use disorder and addiction, which we've talked about, is 
rather common in this population. So while cannabis use disorder is a possibility, the safety profile in line with some of the efficacy from current data makes medical cannabis a strong alternative when and if available. There's also a lot to be said about co-located pain management within an HIV clinic, and it relates to what we call in the, in the practice space the HIV care continuum. And that includes things such as testing, linkage to care, retainment or engagement in care, and then viral suppression. So our review, we discussed some of the data related to any sort of co-location of pain management, palliative care, or other comorbidity management does improve retainment in care. So if these HIV clinics can provide effective analgesia and analgesic Uh, medications like cannabis within the same site as a patient's HIV care, we can see better outcomes. And I'll say from my clinical experience of also providing gender-affirming hormone therapy within a clinic for persons living with HIV of trans experience, these patients will certainly prioritize gender affirmation over their HIV treatment. So I would confidently extrapolate and, and agree that this outcome of providing pain management services at the same time is going to relieve a significant burden related to chronic pain. So if a patient uh, such as those with HIV actually turn to cannabis, or, or they're recommended to use cannabis by their health professional for the treatment of their pain, what, what are your recommendations with regard to therapy? Uh, for example, uh, the route and the dose? Yeah, thank you for that question. There are tons of considerations to keep in mind here, but I think for simplicity, I'll just focus on the THC to CBD ratio and the dosage form of cannabis products. So THC and CBD are two of over 100 cannabinoids found in cannabis plants, and both THC and CBD can have analgesic or pain-relieving effects, um, although there is more robust evidence for THC. Um, however, THC is also responsible for those psychoact- the psychoactive effects of cannabis, or in other words, the high sensation that you get when using cannabis. Uh, and alternatively, CBD does not produce that high and actually helps lessen the high that THC produces. So with those benefits in mind, CBD-predominant cannabis products, which, which is products with more CBD than THC, are typically used in medical settings. And right now, there are no universally accepted dosing guidelines for cannabis. So that makes dosing really, really hard. Um, But we can apply the tried and true, start low, go slow approach. Um, A dosing protocol developed by Arun Basker and colleagues suggests starting most patients on 10 milligrams per day of CBD predominant cannabis and increasing by 10 milligrams every two to three days until maxing out at 40 milligrams. And if that isn't enough to control pain, then the protocol recommends introducing THC at 2.5 milligrams per day and increasing by two and a half to five milligrams every two to seven days, again, up to that 40 40 milligram max daily. Uh, The other consideration I'll touch on today is the dosage form. Oral dosage forms seem to be the most accepted in medical settings. Um, Oral cannabis typically takes a little longer to kick in and lasts longer than inhaled cannabis. And inhaled cannabis has some stigma attached to it. So some states that have legalized cannabis actually have laws that prohibit smoking cannabis altogether. And as healthcare providers, we have to consider that smoking cannabis can have negative effects on your lungs, like just like smoking tobacco. But I think it's important to approach the dosage form from an equity perspective. Many patients may have better access to inhaled cannabis than oral cannabis, And I personally don't agree with legislation putting blanket restrictions on dosage forms. 
banning smoking cannabis seems a little hypocritical when smoking tobacco is still perfectly legal. Now, restricting the locations where you can smoke cannabis is a different story. Uh, But the long and the short of it is it's more important to make sure the cannabis product you recommend is a high quality product. That's where certificates of analysis come in on the quality of those products, which we detail more in our article. You sort of touched on this, but you know, clearly there's more research that's needed in this area. What are, what are some of the barriers to this? And is there any way to, to remedy this issue of um, more research? Absolutely. Yeah. So the scheduling of cannabis as a Schedule One substance creates a lot of barriers for research. There are limitations on who can do cannabis research, who can supply cannabis for research, um, funding for cannabis research, you know, that that scheduling has a really long list of limitations. And in my opinion, the quickest way to remedy this is by rescheduling cannabis into a Schedule 2 or lower. And as a quick reminder, you know, the two main things that determine a substance scheduling are its abuse potential and its accepted medical uses. So Schedule 1 substances, by definition, have high abuse potential and no accepted medical uses, whereas, you know, the other products in Schedule 2 and lower still have addictive potential, but they all have recognized medical uses. So with cannabis and other Schedule 1 substances, there's sort of this chicken and egg scenario in that they are deemed to have no medical uses, but then research into medical uses is also restricted. And so really, cannabis doesn't belong in Schedule 1. You know, alongside all this emerging evidence that we're starting to see and that we comment on in our article, there are four FDA-approved cannabinoid products on the market today. So that makes it hard to defend that no medical use position, and none of those FDA products are in Schedule 1. So cannabis is definitely addictive, but so are opioids, and most opioids are Schedule 2. And alcohol isn't a scheduled substance at all, yet it doesn't have any medical uses and it's more addictive than cannabis or opioids. And same with tobacco and nicotine. So those laws don't really make sense when you think about them. And if cannabis was rescheduled, it would really loosen up the red tape around research, which would help us then get more robust evidence for medical uses of cannabis. Most research to date looks at inhaled THC-predominant cannabis, so I'd like future research to look at the effects of CBD-predominant cannabis and also oral formulations of cannabis to see if they're as effective. I also hope future clinical trials can figure out the best dosing guidelines to get the right balance of maximizing therapeutic effects and minimizing side effects. Well, I couldn't agree more. But beyond the therapeutics in patients with chronic pain, I'm also interested in this issue from a policy point of view. What are the implications for clinical pharmacists and pharmacy educators, and how should the profession approach uh, medical cannabis? Yeah, so if we're going to talk policy, I have to take a quick sidebar and talk about the origins of a lot of our policies about substance use. There's a quote from um, John Ehrlichman, who was the domestic policy chief in the Nixon era, and I'll just read this directly. In an interview in the 90s, he said, We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the Vietnam War or Black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and Blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So that's a really really clear example of stigma and racism on a systemic level. 
you know, there's a reason why cannabis and heroin and peyote and other substances used by Native Americans are in Schedule 1. While, you know, meanwhile, cocaine, which is predominantly used by affluent white men, is in Schedule 2. And these stigmatized policies with the DEA and drug scheduling are still in place today. So even though we, we have this quote and we see that those were, those were based on, you know, stigma and racism, that they're still in place today. So that policy needs to change. And from a patient level, changing that policy would expand access to cannabis as an alternative for pain treatment. It would also hopefully translate into writing a lot of injustice on a human level. Right now, about 40,000 Americans are in jail on cannabis-related offenses, and almost 90% of those arrests are uh, possession-related, meaning people had cannabis for personal use. And even though cannabis use rates are about the same for Black and white people, Black people are over three times as likely to be arrested for cannabis possession compared to white people. So again, changing that policy would hopefully help right a lot of these wrongs. And from a pharmacist level, we need to be advocating to have a seat at the table for medical cannabis use. Pharmacists are medication experts. So if cannabis is going to be used as a medication, we should be there. And a handful of states have legislation requiring pharmacists to be involved in the dispensing process. So I think we'll start to see this legislation uh, become more widespread. Pharmacists also need to learn a lot more about cannabis. So in 2020, I surveyed community pharmacists across the U.S. on their knowledge of CBD isolate products specifically and found that although half of respondents sold CBD in their pharmacies, half also reported feeling uncomfortable counseling or recommending patients about, uh, recommending CBD to patients. So respondents also didn't score well on CBD knowledge questions related to side effects and drug interactions. Education in pharmacy school has got to be better. So you can see clearly why it was so great to work with Molly on writing this paper together. And she really hits the nail on the head with this one about improving that knowledge, attitude, and confidence of pharmacists that are serving patients that are using medical cannabis or CBD. And I would even take that a step further and think about how pharmacists can provide, you know, academic detailing within some of these pain management and HIV clinics on the current evidence for cannabis for pain, mitigating effects that relate to misconceptions that could be related to implementation when that's available. Now, I'd love to see more schools and colleges of pharmacy covering this, like the therapeutics of cannabis, so our future pharmacists are prepared to serve in this capacity. And I know some of our organizations are already starting to do this, but continuing to enhance and develop CE will definitely help our current practicing pharmacists get up to speed, per se, now that we are seeing more and more states legalizing cannabis in various capacities. But going back to students and policy, I think discussing legislation related to cannabis use and practicing, at least in that particular region, along with different advocacy efforts within pharmacy education is just as important as the therapeutics. Just like Molly said, pharmacists should be at the table when it relates to medication use. So we should encourage our students to explore what that means to them in their future career and then use that as advocacy for medical cannabis definitely would be no exception. So I think ultimately, we're, we're at the end of the day here, thinking of pharmacists going to be significantly involved in the use and dispensing of cannabis if rescheduling ever occurs. So I, so I think being aware of current evidence and how to translate this into various clinical practices, including HIV clinics, is going to be critical in providing high quality care. So I'm really excited for us to soon have this opportunity to really put this evidence into action. Yeah, me too. Me three. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, I really found your article interesting, and I'm really happy that you decided to send it to JCCP. It's a great contribution. So thank you both for uh, joining us today, and I hope everybody reads your paper. Yeah, thanks to JACCP for publishing us, and thanks for having us on today, Jerry. Yeah, thank you so much.